to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. Well, my friends, we're in the final stretch of the 2020 elections, finally. And it's been rough, really rough. I don't remember, in fact, I don't think anyone remembers a presidential campaign that was this nasty or this violent, not since the Civil War. Abraham Lincoln was not a well-liked president, not by the American people. They say that Lincoln said this about the constant criticism and hatred that was reflected in the press and by the people at the time. He said, quote, I'd rather be dead than as president thus abused in the house of my friends, unquote. Still, Lincoln won re-election in 1864, even though the Americans really didn't like him very much. And only a few months later, on April 9, 1865, he led the North to victory in the Civil War when General Robert E. Lee surrendered and brought the war to an end. It was only six days later, on the evening of April 14th, that Lincoln was assassinated in Ford Theater by John Wilkes Booth. He was a well-known actor and a Confederate sympathizer and an assassin, as it turned out. It was only after his assassination that Lincoln became a popular hero. Ironically, although they hated him during his life, thousands came out to say goodbye to him at every stop as his funeral train passed through 180 cities and seven states. Its final stop was in Springfield, Illinois, which was his home for most of his adult life, and it's where he was buried on May 4th. In the end, his death was mourned by millions. But it took his assassination to bring him the sympathy and the accolades that he never had in his lifetime. So let's come back to today. And just like Lincoln, Donald Trump has had to endure from the chorus of Democrats and from the mainstream media a constant flow of harassment, slander, and downright lies in response to virtually everything he has done in the nearly four years that he has been president. Trump has been the target of accusations ranging anywhere from crude language to treason and everything in between. He was secretly and openly investigated, not once, but several times, for crimes he didn't commit. He was impeached and acquitted in the U.S. Senate, and the attacks by the Democrats are still coming fast and furiously. Nancy Pelosi has even threatened another impeachment if he is reelected, and Vice President candidate Kamala Harris has just this week threatened to charge him criminally if she becomes vice president. It seems that the Democrats and the mainstream press that supports them wholeheartedly hate him so much that they will never willingly accept him as president, no matter how many people vote for him. And they will never accept another four years of Donald Trump in the White House. They didn't accept the first four years. 
But what about the man who was running against Trump? What about him? He has bragged about using his authority to extort the government of Ukraine by threatening to withhold a billion-dollar loan guarantee unless they fired a prosecutor who was investigating the company in which his son, Hunter Biden, sat on the board of directors. That's another story, and I won't tell it here again. We've talked about it before. But the point is that Joe Biden used the power of his position to withhold promised financial support from the U.S. government in order to protect his son's position. And later on, he bragged about it in a public forum, and it was recorded. That's reason enough for him to be investigated just for that. But as usual, the Democrats and the mainstream media have been ignoring it. It goes much further, of course. He facilitated deals that his son made in China and in Russia that brought millions of dollars into his family and which a flood of more than 26,000 emails that have just been released have proven that the corruption in his family leads right to his front door. And even more information about these illegal activities are coming out every day. Every day. Not just allegations, but proof. Documented proof. Two of Hunter's partners have already been convicted in federal court for their illegal financial activities. But somehow, Hunter was left out of these federal prosecutions. And here's the thing. The Democrats and their mainstream camp followers want nothing to do with anything related to this Biden scandal. Just this last week, NPR, National Public Radio's so-called public editor, Kelly McBride, who is supposed to represent outside perspective to NPR's listeners, tweeted this, quote, Why haven't you seen stories from NPR about the New York Post Hunter Biden story? And then she quoted Terrence Samuel, NPR's managing editor for news. He said, and I quote, We don't want to waste our time on stories that are not real stories, and we don't want to waste the listeners and readers' time on stories that are just pure distractions, unquote. And then he added, and quite frankly, that's where we ended up. This was a politically driven event, and we decided to treat it that way, unquote. Wow. Is he ever missing the point? He says it's not a real story. And they decided to ignore it, even though it represents one of the biggest scandals in American history. Bigger by far than Watergate. The Biden scandal is all about illegal business transactions by people with enormous power, second only to the President of the United States, and those illegal activities compromised America's national security. And NPR thinks it's a waste of time. Unbelievable. Hmm. You just can't make this stuff up. So now we have an election coming up in just a few days between Donald Trump 
who has accomplished so much in a little more than three years in office, and Joe Biden, who has used his power and influence to enrich his family, but has done almost nothing for the country in 47 years. Trump's accomplishments during his first term fill out a list that is long and getting longer every day. And it includes a record-breaking economy until the China virus hit it, lower unemployment, higher family incomes, the creation of millions of jobs. Do you know he signed a law to make cruelty to animals a federal felony? He created a White House veterans hotline and staffed it mostly with veterans and veterans family members to help vets get through the bureaucracy that was causing tremendous suffering and even costing the lives of some of our vets who had to wait for weeks and even months to get urgent medical treatment. He signed an order that allowed small businesses to form a group when buying insurance in order to get better prices for the policies that they were buying. And he championed and signed the First Step Act that gave judges expanded discretion when they sentenced people for nonviolent crimes. And by the way, 90% of those benefiting from the First Step Act are African Americans. During his presidency, the poverty rate fell to a 17-year low of 11.8%, and under Trump, Consumer confidence and small business confidence reached an all-time high. That was before the China virus took its toll. And he championed a program of second-chance hiring to give former inmates the opportunity to live crime-free lives and find meaningful employment. And, of course, he built the wall on our southern border, which is now almost complete. It was a promise that he made during his campaign, and he kept it despite enormous opposition. And he moved the United States Embassy in Israel from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, something Presidents Barack Obama, George W. Bush, and Bill Clinton all promised to do, but never did. And another promise he made was to create the deal of the century for Middle East peace. So he championed the initiation of a comprehensive peace initiative between Israel and the United Arab Emirates. And since that agreement was signed, several other Muslim nations have also agreed to come to the table with Israel to create a new framework for peace in the Middle East. This is amazing. A long list of presidents have tried to do this, to create peace in the Middle East. And only Donald Trump has succeeded in doing it, in accomplishing it. And for these breakthroughs, Donald Trump has been nominated four times for the Nobel Peace Prize. And that's the short list of what Donald Trump has been able to accomplish, even while all the time he was harassed, ignored, insulted, and slandered by the Democrats and their buddies in the press. Then, last January, the China virus, COVID-19, hit the world and brought much of our economy and our population to a screeching halt. The Democrats keep harping on what a horrible job the president did in managing the pandemic crisis. So let's talk about that for a minute. A lousy job, really? They say that hindsight is 2020. 
It's easy to see what you did wrong or what someone else did wrong when you're looking over your shoulder. So here are some facts of what really happened and what the president really did about it. Facts, not fiction. The virus was first discovered in China in late 2019, and that, by the way, is why it's called COVID-19, because it was first discovered in 2019. Simple. I first found out about it in early January 2020. That's what I do. I'm an intelligence analyst, so I got information about the virus, including videos of hospital hallways jam-packed with people trying to get medical attention, body bags lined up against the walls, and story after story of people getting sick with this mysterious virus and dying. One doctor in a Wuhan hospital tried to warn his colleagues of the strange virus that he had seen, and he was pulled in by the police and reprimanded for his trouble. He died on January 25th from the same virus that he had warned other doctors about. At the same time that all this was happening, towards the end of the month, there were also stories about the Chinese people from Wuhan, who had left Wuhan to celebrate the Lunar New Year somewhere else. The Lunar New Year, which began on January 25th, is a time when Chinese people get a long holiday and they frequently use it to travel. And travel they did. They went outside of the city, and many of them went abroad. As many as 5 million people left Wuhan, almost half the population, despite the fact that Wuhan was ground zero for the virus. But they left despite the virus, or who knows, maybe because of it. I also heard that this strange virus had appeared in Hong Kong among people who had been in Wuhan, and came back to Hong Kong and brought the virus back with them, and how the Hong Kong government was urging people not to travel to Wuhan and finally closed its border with mainland China. And most important, early in January, I heard about the government-run biohazard lab in Wuhan, where they had had a lab accident and a powerful virus had been released into the city. Although the Chinese government kept saying that this virus had come from a live market, that's an open-air market where a collection of merchants sell live and exotic animals, including dogs, for food. But this was a lie, and they didn't admit it for a long time. Then on January 11th and January 12th, According to the situation report that the World Health Organization put out, they received further detailed information from the National Health Commission of China that the outbreak is associated with exposures to one seafood market in Wuhan City. The World Health Organization repeated the lie. Okay, that was already the middle of January. Then, on January 20th, who reported that 44 cases of the virus, which they called pneumonia of unknown etiology, were reported in China on December 31st. Well, we all know that that was just a lie. Although the Chinese may not have informed the world about this virus, we know that they knew about it for at least two months earlier and probably 
because they had created it a lot longer than that. There is even information that they had been using the Uyghur prisoners that they are keeping in concentration camps in western China, that they were using them as human guinea pigs to see what the effects of the virus would be. Now, there is a lot more to this story, and it doesn't get any less interesting. Like some of the real numbers of the casualties of the coronavirus in China, not getting out of China officially, and how the World Health Organization stonewalled the world and made Donald Trump the fall guy for their partisanship and their lies. So after the break, I will continue with the story, and then I'll talk about some of the other big stories of the week, including the fallout from the confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, as we count the days leading up to Election Day, next Tuesday, November 3rd. Did you know the average person spends 26 years of their life sleeping? The real troubling statistic is that we spend seven years of our life trying to get to sleep, struggling with racing minds, tossing and turning. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Sleep is proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance. Until now, most sleep supplements haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's HealthyCell.com sleep. So here we are back in January, and we were just beginning to hear about this virus coming from China. By January 20th, the World Health Organization was reporting that there were 282 cases of coronavirus in China, 14 in Thailand, 5 in Japan, and 1 in South Korea. There was no mention of caution in that situation report, not for the United States or any other country not on the list. So this was January 20th. On the 23rd, Forbes was reporting that three Chinese cities in Hubei province, which included Wuhan, were now being sealed and people were being forbidden to travel in or out of the cities. Bus lines and trains were halted and airplanes had been grounded. Remember that this was after 5 million people had already left Wuhan and many of them were traveling abroad. In addition to the closure of the roads and public transportation, a lockdown went into place for the people who were forced to stay in their homes. Most researchers have a big problem with the numbers of sick and dead in China from this virus. China has given us very low numbers indeed, and they're hard to believe, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Let's take a look at this number. In China, everyone has a cell phone, and it is used like a debit card. When you get on a bus, you pay with your phone. When you go to the movies, you pay with your phone, and so forth. That's how the government keeps track of you. But in the three months between January and March 2020, 
21 million cell phones went silent. 21 million. The actual report said that mobile carriers had lost 21 million subscribers in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. The Chinese government explained that because of the virus, many Chinese people who had two phones gave up one. Don't think so. Nice try. But the more probable answer is that more people died from the virus than the CCP is willing to admit. More likely, those 21 million people died from the virus and their phones were silenced. And here's another set of numbers. In Hubei province, where Wuhan is located, there are seven large funeral homes with a total of 84 crematoria. We know that the crematoria were working nonstop, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And most of the people working in the crematoria were working tremendously long hours without sleep and without breaks. So do the math. Assuming that each crematorium can process 24 bodies in a 24-hour day, and that all seven funeral homes were working 24-7 to process all the dead from the coronavirus, that means that in a single day, 1,560 urns of ashes were returned to families every day. Stories, interviews, and videos were leaked out from Wuhan that the workers in the funeral homes were working so hard that many were collapsing from exhaustion. Given the number of furnaces and the 24-7 schedule, it is likely that although the official number of dead in March was some 2,500, the more believable number is probably close to 50,000, and that was only at the end of March. So it is hardly credible that the numbers coming out of China are either realistic or true. Now, getting back to the World Health Organization, it was only on January 25th that they listed the first two cases of the virus in the United States. At that point, there were only 23 confirmed cases in nine countries around the world, so the World Health Organization decided that it was too early to declare a global health emergency, and they decided to meet 10 days later. No urgency here. They also reported that, quote, the source is still unknown, most likely an animal reservoir, and the extent of human-to-human -human transmission is still unclear, unquote. In other words, they didn't know much. Then on January 28th, a World Health Organization senior leadership team, led by Director General Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus, flew to China and met China's President Xi Jinping in Beijing. According to the report that they published afterwards, quote, they shared the latest information on the outbreak and reiterated their commitment to bring it under control. The discussions focused on continued collaboration to improve containment measures in Wuhan, to strengthen public health measures in other cities and provinces, to conduct further studies of the transmissibility of the virus, to continue to share data, and for China to share biological material with WHO, the World Health Organization. These measures will advance scientific understanding of the virus and contribute to the development such as vaccines and treatments, unquote. Oh, really? That's a lot of rubbish, as we later found out. 
China refused to cooperate in any way. And we also found out that Jabrissus was like a disciple of Xi and said whatever he was told to say. So on January 30th, the World Health Organization published Situation Report 10, in which they wrote, quote, the Emergency Committee on the Novel Coronavirus, which is what they were calling it then, under the International Health Regulation, is meeting today to discuss whether the outbreak constitutes a public health emergency of international concern, unquote. Now, this is already January 30th, and who the World Health Organization, is still not sure whether this is a public health emergency, no less a pandemic. So here's my question. What in the world did the Democrats think Donald Trump should do when the World Health Organization was still telling everyone that they weren't sure it was a crisis at all? The truth is the Democrats don't need a reason. It is enough just to charge the president with incompetence in order to make their point with their mindless followers who don't take the time or make the effort to check the facts. So let's get back to them, the facts, because we do care about them. When the first cases of the China virus appeared in the United States in late January, the president didn't wait long at all. Remember, this was a unique situation and no one had ever seen anything like it before. On January 30th, WHO held a meeting to discuss whether the outbreak constitutes a public health emergency of international concern and to find a name for this new virus. First things first, of course. At that point, the United States had only five confirmed cases. And in spite of that, the next day on January 31st, the president declared a nationwide travel ban from China that took effect immediately. He couldn't possibly have moved any faster. Still, he was criticized for it by many Democrats. Among them was no other than Joe Biden. He sent out a tweet on February 1st, the very next day, in which he wrote, and I quote, We are in the midst of a crisis with the coronavirus. We need to lead the way with science not Donald Trump's record of hysteria, xenophobia, and fear-mongering. He is the worst possible person to lead our country through a global health emergency, unquote. Didn't I just hear that Joe Biden denied that he ever accused Trump of being xenophobic? Well, here it is. He said it. Okay, well, if Sleepy Joe was listening to the WHO, the World Health Organization, He was probably on the right side of the argument at the time because all the experts were telling us not to worry, just be careful. They were still worrying what to call the virus. How dangerous could it be? The World Health Organization, my friends, had not gotten it right at all, and they were the experts. It was only on March 11th, six weeks after the president banned travel from China, that the World Health Organization made the assessment that COVID-19 was, in fact, a pandemic. And by that time, there were already more than 183,000 confirmed cases in 113 countries, and nearly 4,300 people had already died from the virus outside of China. In the United States, there were 696 confirmed cases 
and 25 people had died from the virus. What in the world took them so long? As I said, hindsight is 2020, but even in retrospect, Trump did the right thing. He defied the wisdom of the day as expounded by the experts, the scientists, and as it turns out, when he banned travelers from China, he did the right thing. And then he continued to do the right thing. He created Project Warp Speed and had American manufacturers retool their assembly lines so they could manufacture thousands of ventilators and hundreds of thousands, millions of PPE for the healthcare providers who were needing them. And when New York's governor, Andrew Cuomo, requested, no, demanded help for New York State, the president sent the 1,000-bed hospital ship USNS Comfort to New York City with 1,200 medical personnel on board. And not only that, after a phone call with Cuomo, the president also granted his request for four additional medical response sites in Brooklyn, Queens, Staten Island, and the Bronx that would supply an additional 4,000 beds. And that report was according to Governor Cuomo. Trump also authorized the creation of a 2,400-bed hospital in the Jacob Javits Convention Center in Manhattan. The irony and the tragedy of all this was that both the ship and the Javits Center were left mostly empty by Governor Cuomo and Mayor Bill de Blasio, who refused to allow positive patients to go there. In spite of the availability of beds and staff and all the equipment they needed, these two nitwits preferred to send COVID-19 patients back into nursing homes where they infected the elderly residents there who were not allowed to leave. The result, the tragic result, was that thousands of them died. Thousands! The saddest part of this story is that the scientists, whose advice the president was supposed to follow, didn't themselves know what they were dealing with, and they kept changing their stories. First they told us not to wear masks, then insisted we needed to wear masks. They first told us it wasn't a serious threat, and then they warned us how dangerous it really was. And they didn't announce that it was a pandemic until the middle of March. How was the president supposed to know what to do when they kept telling him different things? They kept changing their minds. Amazingly, the president did just about everything he could have to fight this virus, and he undoubtedly saved several hundred thousand lives in the process. And ironically, at the time, the mayors and governors expressed their gratitude. On March 13th, Cuomo said, quote, I want to thank the vice president and especially the president who facilitated this and moved quickly, unquote. Remember that, because only a few months later, Cuomo wrote, quote, To be clear, New York's problem was caused by federal negligence. New York was ambushed by COVID. I believe that this was on a par with the greatest failure to detect an enemy attack since Pearl Harbor, unquote. Clearly, he was accusing the president of grand malfeasance in ignoring the threat. What blatant hypocrisy. And it doesn't end there. Later on, he said in an almost incomprehensible rant, quote, Donald Trump caused the COVID outbreak in New York. Donald Trump caused the COVID outbreak in New York. That is a fact, unquote. 
But I guess he just couldn't stop because he went on. He said Donald Trump and his incompetent CDC and his incompetent NIH and his incompetent Department of Homeland Security, unquote. On another occasion, he said about the president, quote, he is the super spreader that brought the virus to America. Donald Trump caused the COVID outbreak in New York, unquote. And he ranted, it wasn't the China virus, it was the European virus that came to New York. They missed it, they missed it, he shouted. The China virus went to Europe. It got on a plane and went to Europe. They never even thought about the possibility, and then three million Europeans got on a plane and came to New York, and they brought the virus, unquote. I think it's fair to say that this man is more than a little unhinged. His ego is enormous, far bigger than his ability, which is very limited, as he showed when he failed to find a reasonable solution to the problem of where to put elderly COVID-19 patients in New York. He had a solution handed to him, the field hospitals, the Javits Center, the hospital ship, but he refused to use any of them and put thousands of elderly residents of nursing homes at risk and cost thousands of them their lives. It is, of course, only after the fact, after the blue states received the massive assistance from the administration in March and April, it was only then, when they didn't need him anymore, that they began to attack him and accuse him of doing nothing. And Cuomo was not alone. Bernie Sanders said, quote, we have an administration that is largely incompetent and whose incompetence and recklessness have threatened the lives of many, many people in our country, unquote. And then Joe Biden joined the chorus with this. He said, quote, the administration's failure on testing is colossal and it's a failure of leadership, planning, and execution. This virus laid bare the severe shortcomings of the current administration, unquote. Of course, Biden failed to mention the swine flu epidemic that hit the United States during the Obama administration about their failed response to the H1N1 epidemic and how, after their supplies of medical stores were depleted, they failed to restock them. So when Trump needed them for the China virus, the stores were empty. And so the Democrats are accusing Trump of malfeasance and they're displaying a total disregard for the people who elected him. But the American people aren't stupid. And the telling of lies in order to achieve political power is a national disgrace. You know, people like Cuomo and Biden march to a drummer that has very little to do with the values that made this country great. They think it's all about what they can get from the country. They have forgotten what their young Democrat President John Kennedy said at his own inauguration on January 20th, 1961. He said, quote, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country, unquote. Those were stirring words back in 1961. Today, those words are all but forgotten. They would not stir the soul, but rather they'd be largely ignored. With the new angry generation, it's no longer about what they can do for their country. It's all about what their country can do for them. This is the legacy of liberal entitlement. And it's not okay. Now, after the break, I want to talk about where these next few days will take us. 
what will be the consequences of the confirmation of now Justice Amy Coney Barrett? And what will happen when all the votes have been tallied and the results are in? My fellow Americans, our mission here at AmericaOutloud.com is clear. We're here to defend our founding values and principles at a moment when they are under unprecedented assault. And to cover the news objectively and offer intelligent commentary on the challenges we face as a nation. You can tune in and join our family of listeners 24-7 in this vital crusade. Our apps are on Apple, Android, or Alexa. Find us on iHeartRadio or our world-class media player. It is a fight for the soul of humanity. America Out Loud Talk Radio is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Think back to the last time you felt healthy and energized. The best times of our lives occur when we're at the peak of our health, sleeping better, full of energy and focus. We know that fades with age, and you might be feeling the effects of aging as low energy and poor sleep. But it doesn't have to be that way. There haven't been any nutrition systems designed to rejuvenate our bodies as we get older until now. Healthy Cell Pro is the only multi-nutrient system that impacts the building block of your body, the cell. Created by anti-aging expert and Nobel Prize nominee, Dr. Vincent Giampapa, award-winning Healthy Cell Pro cuts through the complexity of nutrition supplements by simply giving you the purest ingredients, filling dietary gaps to nourish your cells and enhance your quality of life for optimal performance. Visit HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for an exclusive discount or call 844-869-9958. Here's a quote for you. Quote, This is the most consequential election in a long, long, long time. And the character of the country, in my view, is literally on the ballot. Unquote. Can you guess who said that? Believe it or not, it was Joe Biden. Just last week. And he was right, but probably not for the reasons that he meant. This is a contest between America the beautiful, land of the free, home of the brave, and an America that we will not recognize in a couple of years, encumbered by a politicized Supreme Court and a legislature determined to create a socialist country. With a Democrat victory, America as we know it will be gone. The world will have lost a champion for liberty. This isn't hyperbole, my friends. This is reality and our lives depend on it. This week, on Monday evening, the United States Senate voted to confirm Judge Amy Coney Barrett to the Supreme Court, where she will now be known as Justice Amy Coney Barrett. The Democrats have gone into meltdown. Senator Chuck Schumer warned Republicans that they would live to regret their vote. He said, quote, The Republican majority is lighting its credibility on fire. The next time the American people give Democrats a majority in this chamber, you will have forfeited the right to tell us how to run that majority, unquote. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi took a different tack. She said, 
Congress will have to reverse the damage of a radical Republican court and defend pre-existing condition protections together with every other benefit and protection of the Affordable Care Act. With this usurped Supreme Court seat, she said, the president is ripping away millions of families' health care in the middle of a pandemic that has infected over 8.6 million people and killed nearly one quarter of a million Americans, unquote. And the infamous squad led by Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, better known as AOC, had only this to say, expand the court, she tweeted. Another member of the squad, Rashida Tlaib, was more wordy. She tweeted, quote, we're going to take back the White House and Senate next week with a resounding mandate from the people to fight back against Trump's illegitimately stacked judiciary. We must expand the court if we're serious about the transformational change the people are crying out for, unquote. Well, I don't know that the people are crying out for socialism. I suppose some are, but I doubt that they're in the majority. You know what really gets me? The Democrats have decided in advance how this new justice will rule on issues that are important to them, but may or may not be brought up before the court. And they are convinced that Justice Amy Coney Barrett will make decisions that are directly opposed to what they believe and will find acceptable. That she will, for example, find against abortion and against health care that protects pre-existing conditions. That's completely nuts. After watching Barrett through the days of her confirmation hearing before the Senate Judiciary Committee, I am convinced that nobody, and maybe not even Justice Barrett herself, knows how she will rule on any specific case. She is, I believe, a true originalist, and she will make her decisions based on the law and what she thinks was the intent of the men who framed the Constitution. The Democrats are assuming, incorrectly I think, that because she is politically conservative, personally, and a protege of the late Justice Antonin Scalia, who was a conservative and an originalist, she will make decisions based on her conscience rather than the law. Maybe that's what they would do but I don't think that Justice Barrett will. I believed her when she said before the committee in her hearing that she will base her decisions on the law and the intent of the Constitution. Justice Barrett has one of the sharpest legal minds I have ever seen. Her answers were direct, to the point, and she never hesitated, not for a moment, even on an obscure point of law or a little-known case. She did not hesitate in her answers. When she was asked to hold up the notes that she had been referring to during the hearing, what she held up was a blank notepad. She had no notes, only her keen memory and her comprehensive knowledge of the law. By any standard tied to the law, Amy Coney Barrett was an excellent choice to fill the empty seat on the Supreme Court. The naysayers who wish her to fail or who plan to pack the court in the next Congress 
are playing politics with the highest court in the land and are likely, if they are successful, to turn this apolitical court into another political branch of our federal government. Justice Barrett may not always take a position on a case the way I would want her to. I likely will not always agree with her. But I don't know the law the way she does. And the decisions are not emotional ones. Her decisions will not be emotional ones. At least, I trust her to come to her decisions because she is following the law as she thinks it was intended to be. And I'm okay with that. Here's something I'm not okay with. Every day, there is more evidence of the illegal activities of the Biden family. Not just Hunter Biden anymore. In the beginning, it was Hunter getting profitable perks by just being Joe Biden's son. This was particularly true when Joe Biden was vice president. But the Bidens did something that took Hunter's indiscretions far beyond what might have gone undiscovered. And they made so many mistakes in the process that their discovery was almost inevitable. The first mistake was Joe's when he spoke at an event of the Council on Foreign Relations. In the course of his talk, he talked about being in Ukraine to deliver a billion-dollar loan guarantee. You know the story. He bragged about how he extorted the Ukraine government in order to protect his son's position on the board of a corrupt energy company. He was proud of it. That mistake called attention to Hunter Biden and his dubious activities in the area of international business. He had no experience or training in international business, any of it. His sole qualification was his name, Biden, and the power that his father held as vice president and now as a candidate for the presidency. The second mistake was made by Hunter himself. He took his laptop for some kind of repair back in 2019, and then he never came back for it. Time passed, and the computer repair shop owner began to look into it, and what he found was far from what he expected. So he turned it over to the FBI, who told him not to discuss it. And according to Fox News, the FBI inspected the computer and determined that there was sufficient evidence to believe that there was criminal conduct related to money laundering on the laptop. Only they never did anything about it. And in addition, attorney Rudy Giuliani, former mayor of New York City, reported that, quote, numerous pictures, unquote, of underage girls were also found on Hunter Biden's laptop. There's a lot more to this story. But if I go on and tell you all the different parts, we're going to be at it all evening. So suffice it to say that the laptop was seized, the information has been harvested, and now what we are waiting to see is what is going to be done about it. Are the Bidens going to skate and go scot-free? Will Joe Biden become president and this will all go away? There is more to this part of the story, but we'll be at it all evening if I go on. So mistake number three happened when Joe Biden refused to discuss Hunter or his business activity 
and got angry with reporters when they brought it up. But then he brought it up himself when he accused Rudy Giuliani of repeating Russian disinformation. So Giuliani went on national television to rebut that slur. That didn't get any coverage, did it? Mistake number four happened when the Bidens turned their backs on former partners, Bevan Cooney and Devin Archer, who were both charged with financial crimes and sentenced to federal prison. Archer had his sentence vacated and then reinstated, but Cooney was left in prison. He seethed. And then, I guess in a way of getting back at Hunter, he released a treasure trove of 26,000 emails among the partners and their business contacts. There was a lot of damning evidence in those emails. But it didn't end there either, because they were not the only partners that the Bidens turned their backs on. Tony Bobulinski, a retired Navy lieutenant and one of Hunter's former business partners, was another recipient of the Biden cold shoulder. He had been invited to serve as CEO of Sinohawk Holdings. That was one of the Biden's ventures with China, which he said was a partnership between the Chinese, operating through a state-owned company, CEFC, and the Biden family. He was brought into the company to be the CEO by James Gillier and Hunter Biden. That's what he said. But he was left holding the bag when the Chinese partners never fulfilled their financial obligations and opted instead for another deal in Russia. Another partner betrayed. He expressed his dismay to Hunter, who brushed him off. But what really pushed him into revealing what he knew about the Biden's business activities was when House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff called his story Russian disinformation. In an appearance on Fox News's Tucker Carlson Tonight, Babulinsky stated that he was motivated to come forward on the record because he couldn't stand to have his family's name sullied by being connected to Russian disinformation, and he demanded an apology from Adam Schiff. The stories of the Bidens and their illicit and high-profile business dealings is long and complicated. Joe Biden refuses to discuss the situation and calls this story, all of it, a smear against his son and his family. You know, there's an old saying that goes, where there's smoke, there's fire. And there sure is a lot of smoke here. And as the days go by, the smoke is getting thicker and the evidence is becoming increasingly compelling. Time is running out and it's now a race to the finish line. Will enough of the story come out in time to influence the election? Will the media begin to cover the story because it is so big that they can't avoid it? Will Joe Biden be able to avoid the scandal even if he's elected? And in that case, Will the Democrat Party sideline him in favor of the first woman president, Kamala Harris? And finally, if that happens, will America as we know it, will it survive a Harris presidency? America was never intended to be a socialist country. As Biden said, this is the most consequential election in a long, long, long time. 
And the character of the country, in my view, is literally on the ballot. Yes, Joe, it is. So what can we reasonably expect from the upcoming elections? Well, there are several ways to look at it. If you look at the polls, it's a pretty tight race. The candidates are pretty much neck and neck, with Joe Biden slightly in the lead. In some states, Trump is pulling ahead, and in others, not so much. So if you believe the polls, the race is likely to be a photo finish, and Biden may well be the winner. But the polls didn't do such a good job last time around, and although Hillary Clinton was a clear favorite, it was Trump who pulled the rabbit out of the hat and took the prize. So let's look at things a little differently. When Donald Trump holds a rally, thousands of people show up, sometimes tens of thousands. But when Joe Biden holds a rally, only 20 or 30 people show up. And at one rally in New Hampshire, Kamala Harris was there, the press was there, but there wasn't one single supporter to hear him speak. What does that tell you? If the people won't come to hear him speak, will they come out and vote for him? On the other hand, how many of the thousands of people who come to the Trump rallies will also come out to vote? I don't have an answer to that. I just don't know. This is something new in our electoral history. These huge, enormous rallies have never happened before. So I don't know what they mean. And I don't know what it means when in the polls, Joe Biden is leading, but when he goes to speak, nobody comes. What does that mean? So then there are the issues, right to life versus the right to choose. Medicare for all or open market health insurance with protection for pre-existing conditions. Open borders or legal immigration. The Green New Deal or sensible environmental regulations. And how about allowing the UN to govern our affairs or independence from international interference in our internal affairs? And what about gun confiscation or the right to keep and bear arms? Socialism or liberty with responsibility in a representative republic? These are our choices as we approach the most important election in our lifetime. There is one thing that is more important than anything else. If you believe in a free America whose basic guarantees are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, then you must go out and vote if you haven't already. These are our choices. They're ours to make. Benjamin Franklin said, we have a republic if we can keep it. Let's do what's necessary so that we can keep it. This is the most important election in our lifetime, and the choice is ours to make. God bless America. Well, my friends, we've reached the end of another hour. Thank you for spending it with me. I hope you have a good week, a healthy week, a happy week, and I hope you'll join me again next week. 
You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this has been the Friedman Report.